0: Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they
1: want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. It's the time of year when people gather together to eat and express thanks with friends and family. We've all heard the story of how Thanksgiving came to be, but what many of us were taught is not really what happened. To shed light on the actual history, many Native American communities use a different name for the fourth Thursday in November, the National Day of Mourning. How did this observance get its start? And how can learning more about this history change the way those of us who observe Thanksgiving celebrate? Later this hour, we'll talk with activists, organizers, and allies about how to observe this observance got its start. But first, last Saturday, a 22-year-old shooter opened fire at Club Q in Colorado Springs, killing five people and injuring another 19. The shooting in Colorado at an LGBTQ club hit the queer community especially hard. And it comes at a time when conservative lawmakers across the country are proposing and passing laws to restrict LGBTQ rights, including here in Tennessee. Last night at Public Square, there was a vigil for the victims in Colorado Springs. WPLN editor Julia Ritchie was there and joins us now. Hey, Julia.
2: Hey,
0: Khalil.
1: So, thanks for being here. thanks. So, what was it like there last night?
0: There were more than a hundred people that showed up. You know, it was a little chilly. um so maybe not as many people as might have shown up um did. um, but a lot brought their pride flags. It was a really somber sort of crowd. Um, you could see some people crying. There was a lot of pain and anguish over this latest mass shooting, uh, which I will mention. We went to the vigil last night and then I woke up and my first alert on the phone that there was another mass shooting this morning. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a weariness, too, um, in the crowd um, and uh, many people holding candles uh, throughout the event.
1: For many people, the events of Saturday reminded them of the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting six years ago when 49 people were killed and another 53 wounded. Was that top of mind for people there?
0: For sure. Um, A lot of people brought it up during their speeches, um, the the speakers that um, were there for the event. David Taylor, who co-owns the Queer Bars Tribe and Play down on uh, Church Street, was one of several speakers last night. And um, he says he remembers them holding a vigil six years ago Mm. after the Pulse nightclub shooting. So it's like a bad nightmare seeing it happen again. Last night, I saw the faces of those killed at Club Q for the first time. And when I saw the faces of those beautiful human beings, I saw each of you. I saw our employees, our customers, our friends, our allies, our parents. I saw our people, our wonderfully diverse LGBTQ plus family. And the hole in my heart just opened a little more.
1: Hmm. Who else spoke during the event?
0: There were quite a few of uh, speakers from uh, local LGBTQ groups, faith leaders, um, and local elected officials. Um, one of the most powerful speeches, in my opinion, came from Odessa Kelly, if you'll remember. She's the openly gay black Democrat who just lost the race for the 7th Congressional District, longtime community activist. Um, and she spoke for almost five minutes, Khalil, you know, yeah. about how tired she is of these types of shootings and just feeling like her identity as a a, a woman, a gay woman, a gay black woman is a political football.
2: When does this end? It don't end unless we do something
3: about it. And you got to step up in every way that you possibly can. And that's not just voting. It should be a million people out here today. There was an individual earlier that asked me if I was going to this vigil. I was like, yeah, are you coming? He's like, no, I don't want people to think that I'm gay. Mm.
1: God. Mm. Yeah. You can really hear the emotion in her voice. <clears throat> was was there a call to action among those there?
0: You know, it was a, like I said, pretty somber. Um, so a lot of it was, um, you know, reading out the names of the victims in uh, of Colorado Springs. But some speakers, including Odessa Kelly and Heidi Campbell, a, a, another state senator, um, encouraged those in attendance not to 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 get like. Um, desensitized or cynical over these things, but to actually keep fighting the hate and division that's kind of taken root in this country. Um, And especially in this state, you know, we have Tennessee Republicans proposing uh, several laws already, proposed legislation in the works for next session to limit transgender care, um, to uh, restrict uh, drag shows. So, and as I said before, you know, this is just the latest of, uh, it's like the intersection of both gun violence and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. So Mm -hmm. it it is a lot to take in, but um, a lot of the speakers there wanted to underline, like, we have to keep fighting these problems in our country. We can't give up. There were seven mass shootings in seven days Mm. across the country, 600 so far this year, according to the Washington Post. Um, And we know that these things are preventable policies like red flag laws do work, Um, but there's a lot of apathy uh, and that's that's tough to overcome right now.
1: Keeping that in mind, I have to imagine safety was on the minds of for a lot of folks who were attending last night. How safe did you feel?
0: I felt pretty safe, you know, but all the folks I talked to in the crowd acknowledged that they had this like moment of hesitation before coming. And it's hard not to think of that right in Mm -hmm. the back of your mind. You're like, I'm in this open field in front of in public square in front of the courthouse there wasn't, you know, a, a large security presence or anything like that. Um, and so, it, and especially coming after an attack like that, you're like, we're gonna gather a bunch of people that, are, you know, many are, who identify as part of the LGBTQ community together in one sp- one space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's of course it's gonna be on your mind. Um, so I met this couple, Tracy Ross and Patricia Fauner, a- as they were leaving the vigil last night, uh, and Tracy spoke about this concern of safety.
3: I was very scared we stayed in the parking ramp until 6 30 and then she assured me that it would be safe and we actually parked in a place that we could get to quickly if we needed to get to
0: if there was violence have now having been here and, and the event is close to concluding you know do you feel
3: better yes we're gonna go dance actually we're gonna go out to one of the gay bars and dance right now so yeah we feel like we need to do that and we feel safe and yeah
1: mm, that goes to say something about where we're at as a society where, you know, we're constantly thinking about the security presence of where we go. Given the fact that this morning there was a shooting at Walmart in Virginia. Right. A lot of people are going shopping thinking, is it going to be safe where I go?
0: And for me, it shows the resilience of people, right? Is that she was ready to go dancing almost like as this act of defiance that like, you know, like don't let the terrorists win. Like Mm -hmm. we're not going to let this event overtake what was a very safe And like communal space for the queer community here Um, and I know as a journalist I try not to get cynical about these things so I sincerely hope I don't have to cover another vigil like this again Um, and I think it's okay to say you know like let's try to make this the last time we have to get together in this capacity
1: I agree with you wholeheartedly that was WPLN's Julia Ritchie Julia thank you so much and thanks for your reporting
0: thank you Khalil
1: we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the National Day of Mourning and invite members of our local Native American communities to share how they observe the day. Some celebrate as Thanksgiving. Join the conversation. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil e. Colona and this is Nashville. For many Native Americans, the fourth Thursday in November is not a day to celebrate. Instead, it's a day to set the record straight about the true story of the Thanksgiving holiday. This day of observance and contemplation has come to be known as the National Day of Mourning. To help us learn more, I'd like to introduce my first guests. Albert Bender is a Cherokee activist with the American Indian Coalition, and Jody Kazoudasat Matina is from the Citizen Band of Potawatomi Nation and a board member of the American Indian Movement here in Tennessee. I want to give thanks to you both for being here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. And Jody, I understand you would like to give us a translation of your name.
3: Um, yes, so Gizoutasat, uh, Indejnakos, Bodewatomi, Citizen Band, Endow, in Dodum. So my name is Jody, one who helps children. I am Citizen Band, um, Potawatomi, descendant from the Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and um, Adawa. And um, my clan is um, the Loon Clan. And I'm um, really happy to be here today. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge that we're on um, Cherokee. Land and Yuchi and um, Shawnee. So I'd like to give that acknowledgement today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, Albert, I'd like to start off questioning with you. Can you tell us what the National Day of Mourning is?
4: The National Day of Mourning is a demonstration that started in 1970, and it started with the speech that was to be given by Frank Juan James in 1970 at a Thanksgiving Day celebration that was sponsored by the state of Massachusetts. And what happened was the speech that he was to be given, that he was to be giving, it was asked by the uh, sponsoring organizations that they see a copy of his speech first Mm. in order to review it. He did that and they found the speech unacceptable by their standards because it talked about the enslavement and warfare that was conducted against indigenous peoples that resulted in the decimation of tribes in the area. And because of that, he was given a speech that was written by a non-Indian member of, the, of a Massachusetts uh, board of directors agency, which he refused to give. Mm-hmm. And in further response to that, he organized in 1970 a national day of mourning to demonstrate the, what had happened to Native people over the past centuries and to use it as an educational tool to present the correct history of the tribes in the area and also as a way forward for people to further understand thanksgiving and why native people as in general don't celebrate it and this national day of mourning has been held each year without break since 1970, and uh, will be held again tomorrow. It's held always on the first, fourth day of uh, the month,
1: which is Thanksgiving. Can take me back to that time. When you first heard of the National Day of Mourning, what was your reaction? How did you respond to that?
4: Oh, gosh. When I first heard of the National Day of Mourning was when it actually took place Mm -hmm. in 1970. And from that period on, I observed a day of fasting on Thanksgiving Day. I lived in different parts of the country in which I had a number of non-Indian friends and their families. They would always celebrate Thanksgiving, and I would always be invited to their Thanksgiving celebrations, but I always declined because of the fact that of the National Day of Mourning being a sad day for Native Americans in this country. Jody, how do you observe
1: this day?
3: Well, it's a little bit different for me because I do walk in two different worlds. My, my father's of Scottish descent and, of course, my mom's Pottawatomie. So in order to keep peace in the family, I guess we practice both growing up. Um, but it was, my mom always made it more about, um, the harvest moon. So we'd always have indigenous foods. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of pomp and circumstance around, um, non-indigenous foods. It was all about stuff that we could harvest and grow on our own. So my mom really kept it that way, which was great. So for me today, I still just celebrate harvest moon, but at the same time, um, honoring, um, those who've gone on before us, starting from colonization. So all the way from colonization to the Indian removal of our people, um, to um, boarding school era, as well as our missing and murdered indigenous people. So recognizing that all today, having some respect for them, um, making sure we have our prayers with our smoke up and we put tobacco down so that that respect is there. But in, so we bring that spirit into the harvest feast. At the same time,
1: what's the significance of really celebrating the harvest moon at this time?
3: It's community. I feel like everything is about community. So harvest time is when you you're you're reaping what you sowed. You worked all hard, so hard during the spring and summertime to grow, to forage, to hunt, um, to gather, to prepare for winter time. So it's a time to really see where c- community got you. Um, all of that, because you can't do it all on your own, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you could try, but you're going to have a really hard time. But with community, you can have a group harvesting maple, another group harvesting rice, harvesting game and wild um, deer, um, and growing agriculture. So then you have a little bit of everything, and you come together as a community, and you celebrate community in Mm -hmm. essence.
1: You, You work to promote food sovereignty within the native communities. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Yes. So food sovereignty, it's a big umbrella term um, that in a nutshell comes back to community. It's where um, Native people and nations will have the right to gather their own food, grow their own food um, under their own nation. So, um, And you have the freedom to do that as well as um, decolonizing food, which is also Mm. another big word. But it's basically taking out any foods that our DNA doesn't recognize, such as dairy, wheat, and, of course, alcohol, Um, because that wasn't in our staple diet before contact. And um, our DNA still to this day doesn't recognize it. Mm. So we have a a bunch of native people who um, have a lot of gut issues. Most of us have our gallbladders taken out in our early 30s. Um, We have fatty livers, even if we don't drink. Um, diabetes and heart disease are rampant in Native communities. So, going back to our indigenous food, which is minus dairy and minus wheat, and of course minus alcohol, you can reverse almost all of that and see healthier people. So that's basically it in a mm. little nutshell.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. You know, <laughs> you know, when I lived in New Mexico, I attended feast days at the Taos and Sandia Pueblos, and food was everywhere. Food is everything. I think I had about three huge plates and I was encouraged to eat more before I left. Talk to me about how important of a role that food plays in the daily lives of Native communities.
3: Oh, food is everything. Like we bring food to every gathering, whether it's a dispute or a planned gathering or getting together for ceremony, food is always at the heart of it. Even when we break our fast during sunrise ceremony every day, We break that with water and then with food. Um, We always bring food. We always bring gifts. It's something so that when you're nourishing your bodies, you're also nourishing the soul at Mm. the same time. And it's also a great thing to have at disputes because if you're eating, you can't argue. Mm. And then usually by the time you're done eating, you're not mad anymore. So it just helps simmer everything down. And at the heart of that, again is community.
1: Mm-hmm. So you're
3: it right. all comes together.
1: Yeah, you brought me a nice gift of wild rice today. Yes, I'm a uh, newman. Thank you so you're, much. I've, you're welcome. I appreciate that. You know, this this makes me think that having land and a space to practice food sovereignty is imperative yeah. to all of these efforts. You know, is that is that one of the main focuses of AIM, to secure lands for Native communities?
3: It's the main thing of AIM. That's a huge blo- um, umbrella term as well. Um, but a lot of it is yes, land back. Because if we're able to take care of our land, if we're if our treaty rights are honored, we're able to take care of that land and take care of our plant relatives, our animal relatives, and our waterways, which is huge. Without that, it's you can't have food sovereignty mm. um, because there's going to be overuse, which we're seeing everywhere, um, depletion of resources, which is a huge problem. Um, so. And land back is another, um, people hear land back and they think, oh, they just want us to leave, and that's not what land back means.
1: Well, what does it mean?
3: Land back means that you're consulting Indigenous people, specifically those ancestral to that land, to know how to treat the plant and animal relatives and waterways without depleting it and raping those resources. So it's including Native people in saying having a say in what happens to those lands. Mm. So you don't have to leave.
1: Okay.
5: You
3: don't have to give up anything. Just listen to indigenous people.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host Khalil Le Colona. We're talking this hour about the National Day of Mourning recognized by Native American communities. Join the conversation by tweeting us at this is Nashville. So the story of Thanksgiving is generally taught in American schools as this warm and fuzzy affair but that's not really the case. Albert, can you give us the history on what actually happened on the first Thanksgiving?
4: Yes, I can, and it's a very sad and very uh, genocidal story. The very first Thanksgiving was in commemoration, well, was because of the what happened in 1637. In that year soldiers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony genocidally massacred over 700 Pequot indigenous men, women, and children. And in response to that massacre, Governor Winthrop, who was the chief executive of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, proclaimed that day as a day of thanksgiving for the safe return of the soldiers who had committed this heinous genocidal massacre of native men, women, and children. And that is the true story of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, as is celebrated in popular cultures, did not take place in 1621. Hmm. It was not an amicable, celebratory gathering of indigenous people
1: and pilgrims. Well, how does the whitewashing of the holiday, how does that disrupt our collective understanding of the country's history?
4: Well, what it does is it gives a very mythologized presentation of the country's history. And to mythologize it in that extent and to that extent, presents an erasure of native american culture and history and it takes away from the crimes of colonization that have been ongoing and continue to this very day so by bringing about or teaching the true and correct history of thanksgiving it brings about an awareness of what happened in the past and a commitment to making a better present and future by working with Native American nations for that, to that extent, and to bring about a, an awareness of the, by, to be brought about by the future generations mm. for a better future for all the people of this country.
1: You know, some people have called to decolonize the holidays. that would you just describe some of the best ways to do that?
4: Well, one of the best ways to decolonize the holiday is to use the holiday as an educational tool to, as I have stated, to present the true and correct history of a Thanksgiving. And to further decolonize the holiday is to give consideration to even renaming the holiday, Mm -hmm. to naming it to um, Indigenous Foods Day or uh, Indigenous uh, People's Day. But that is headed in the direction of decolonizing the holiday and making people aware of the theft of Native land, the genocide committed against Native peoples, and to further confront all the issues that are facing Native nations, Indigenous nations in this country
1: today. When people are not really well-versed in histories, they can be susceptible to believing myths and falsehoods that are out there. Jody, what are some of the myths about Native American history that are really prevalent today?
3: Oh, there's so many. Um, I guess the, the one I get asked most often is if I pay taxes.
5: Hmm. Um,
3: I can assure you I pay plenty of taxes um, or that the government gives us money. Um, we do not get paid by the government. If so, I'm still waiting for that check. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also not a monolith. We don't all live in teepees. We don't wear buckskins. Um, we don't look um, like the typical Hollywood natives. You can see Albert and I look very different, but we're both native but we're also from different tribes. And there's over 574 federally recognized tribes. And those are just the federally recognized tribes within the United States. There's many more in Canada, as well as Mexico and Central Southern um, America. Um, And we're all different. We all have different language groups. We all look a little bit different. We have a little bit different culture. So we're not all the same. So that's a huge misconception or um, some people have also, when they find that I'm Native and I'm off my reservation, they didn't, they were surprised. They didn't think that I was allowed to leave the reservation. Hmm. So that's something, um, and it's easy to chuckle at that, um, but they were taught this or they assumed it so they just didn't have that education.
1: Well, you know, how do these myths affect Native communities and individuals within them?
3: Well, Native people, we have um, a quirky sense of humor, Hmm. and we turn everything into humor. For just an example, um, one of the news stations not so long ago, they were talking, I think they were trying to say indigenous creators, and it came out indigenous creatures. Hmm. And um, it was a little offensive that we were um, given the term creatures instead of human beings, um, even though it was just a mistake on their part. And it turned it, now it's a meme. Everyone has a t shirt. Um, Our humor, we just turn everything into humor. So there's a lot of um, inside tribal jokes. Mm. Um, We hear a lot about, um, well, Cherokee princesses, that's another huge one. A lot of people, unfortunately, in their families, um, either from the Cherokee land grab or from a fad in the 20s, believe that their grandmother or great grandmother was Cherokee. And um, and some will even say that they're a descendant of a Cherokee princess. And unfortunately for them, it's um, it was an untruth probably told by grandma or grandpa back in the early 1900s. Mm. And they really don't have any affiliation. So that's always a running joke within Native communities, too. And again, we could get really offended by it. But everything turns into humor. We laugh about almost everything,
1: you know we've been seeing all kinds of opposition to teaching the difficult and less flattering parts of our nation's past and history. Albert, how can recognizing things like the National Day of Mourning help break down some of the myths we've been talking about?
4: Well, I think that it can help to break down some of the myths that we've been talking about because I have encountered and uh, other uh, Native indigenous, and other indigenous friends of mine have encountered from people in the mainstream society as a surprise that we even still exist.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and that has to no extent continued to amaze me because of the fact that right now and for the past um, several decades, there are powwows held in all parts of the country attesting to the fact that we are a strong, vibrant, and rapidly increasing people. And to look at all of the myths that exist by looking at the National Day of Mourning, that is another statement to the fact that we are strong and vibrant and exist, and even to the uh, testing to the fact that the tribes the indigenous nations that were decimated by the pilgrims have once again experienced a resurgence, and that is part and parcel of the National Day of Mourning, because that national day is spearheaded, is uh, highlighted, and led by descendants of the indigenous nations that were uh, allegedly
1: or thought to have been wiped out by the pilgrims. What do you want people to think about as they gather with family and friends tomorrow?
4: Well, one, it always bothers me that people actually have these huge Thanksgiving gatherings. Millions of people are hitting the roadways, hitting the airways, and I've come to the conclusion that because of the popularity of thanksgiving the way it has been presented in mainstream culture that people will continue to do this but what i hope is is that when people are um eating their turkey and pumpkin pie there will be a consciousness at least in the back of their memory banks at least in the back of their minds that The so-called Thanksgiving really never took place and that this will propel mainstream society to work with Native peoples, Indigenous nations, for a better future. And there's so many issues that are confronting Native people at this time, including the uh, Indigenous uh, Child Welfare Act that's uh, before the Supreme Court, We have, uh, and and this is something I want to mention here locally, Mm -hmm. we have here locally Vanderbilt University, which is considered a very prestigious university, the Chancellor of Vanderbilt University. His name is pronounced uh, Demirier, as I can best recall. He's originally from Germany. He is in opposition to the adoption by Vanderbilt University of a Land Acknowledgement Act, and also refuses to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. So these are a number of issues that are facing Native peoples that you would think in this day and time would be uh, ridiculous for for there to be opposition uh, to. But uh, these are the kinds of issues that need to be brought to the public, and the public needs to react
1: on them. That is Cherokee activist and historian, Albert Bender. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it and good to see you again. Okay, thank you, my pleasure. Jody Gisaudu- Gisaudu- Swat Matina is going to stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll check in on how our local indigenous communities are doing right now. How do you observe the National Day of Mourning? We want to hear from you. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about the National Day of Mourning and changing narratives around the Thanksgiving holiday. Now we want to learn more about our local indigenous communities and how they're doing in the present day. With that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Ray Emanuel is Lumbee and the executive director at the Native American Indian Association of Tennessee. And Eleanor Lopez is a board member with NAIA Tennessee. Ray, Eleanor, thanks for being here today. Welcome to This is Nashville. Good to join you.
5: Thanks for having us.
1: So, Ray, tell me, how does the Native American Indian
2: Association support the local Native community? The Native American Indian Association, basically, we are a service agency. We've been in operation going on 42 years a lot of native people end up here in Nashville for various reasons. A lot of them end up on the street, homeless, and so forth. They have nowhere to turn to. Once you leave that, your reservation, the service that you may have does not follow you, whether it be health care, emergency system, whatever. They end up off, and we work with them to try to get them back to their tribe at what they want to, and also work with them to try to get them into the job market. We have a job training program where we can get into a four-year institution or a two-year trade school, or even on the job training type program. We work with them, try to get them on their feet, and provide service for them. How successful have you been? It's it been great, but the biggest problem is uh, funding. Our job training program, which is funded by the Department of Labor, they must be enrolled in a school program. On the job training, it also helped to a certain extent. We have a volunteer group who work with us. We work down at the Titan football game. We work at concerts, whatever, to raise funding that we can kind of use where the DOL funding cannot be used.
1: I know a major funding effort for you all is the powwow, and every year the NAIA sponsors a powwow at Long Hunter State Park. I attended last year, and I really great enjoyed myself. It was different. In living in New Mexico, I've been to the Gathering of Nations, and so it was one of the first things I decided to do when I got here, and it really was
2: a wonderful affair. Tell me, how was this year's event? This year was another great success. Uh, we had a little uh, rainy weather on Sunday afternoon, but it did not stop anything. We had, again, anywhere from twelve to 14,000 people came out over the three-day weekend. So it was a, another great success. You know, what are the plans to grow the event for the future years? The plan to grow, we are looking for bigger space that we definitely need. I guess you realize that by being out there. Mm -hmm. And our biggest problem, our biggest project right now to build this Native American Indian Center. It's a project we've been working on for a few years now. We have six acres of land on Bell Road, and we're in the process of developing the Indian Center. Uh, the Indian Center will have an administrative office. It will have a, a museum, a library, where the public also welcome to come to visit and use. Before we got into the situation we're in now, we used to be located in the installment Building, downtown Nashville. Of course, the city sold that building, everybody had to get out. We just did not have the funding for office space here. You well know the rent here in Davidson County is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. We moved our job training office to Smyrna on the old Smyrna Air Force Base, and we moved everything else in a four-room house on Spence Lane. we working out of boxes on top of one another, so on and so on. The architect firm got involved with us and a building contractor, and we designed this Indian center, and we're in the process trying to get that built. What are some of the challenges to getting the Indians? Fundraising, fund. fundraising. Fundraising, fundraising, <laughs> fundraising. you got to keep in mind, because you probably already know this, we do not receive any funding from uh, uh, DOL for this center or the BIA, which is Bureau of Indian Affairs. They only fund reservation and tribes. And Tennessee does not have a reservation, so therefore if we don't get any of that funding. We have to get out there and work with the public, work with foundation, local, and try to get funding to get a bill.
1: Now, Eleanor Ray's been talking about the plan for this Native Cultural Center. I wonder, have you been in talks with city and local officials?
5: We have. We're optimistic that maybe we can get some appropriations at the local and federal level, but um, those things take time. Um, You know, one of the things about our legislatures is we have one Native American legislature, uh, Dr. Brian Terry, in the whole state of Tennessee. So, Mm. um, and we do have a new, a newer state rep, right, Ray? Yes. uh, Was that Justin Jones? Yes, Justin Jones. Yeah, Justin Jones. so, two now, um, recently. So, we've gotten some support from uh, one of our congressmen, um, Uh, Congressman Dr. Mark Green. And I think we're, it's looking optimistic from here.
1: I understand that there's some challenges with keeping the powwow at Longhunter State Park. Can you talk to me about that?
5: Yes, it's really the size. I think we're maybe outgrowing the traffic. Um, That's been an issue, but we're working with our legislatures and we're hoping that we can continue to have the park there and Optimistic about that route at the moment.
1: Mm. Now, you know, Tennessee is a state that does not recognize native lands as sovereign Ray, tell me how does that change what native communities do on their property?
2: Well, the state does not have any jurisdiction on on the tribal land If they deal strict with their own they have their own government It's a government within a government and they deal with the federal government I could say the state have no jurisdiction on tribal land and you well know all the lands in Tennessee once were owned by Native people, which was taken from. You heard that over and over and over. And the sad point, like Illinois just said, we do not have representation when it comes to our local government and our state government and also even in our federal government. Mm-hmm. That one of the big problems Native people face every day.
1: What does that tell you about the state's view of the Native community?
2: I, I I think they just don't, I don't know if they don't understand or something they don't want to get involved with. Uh, I just, it's hard to say, to be honest with you. I have spoken to a, quite a few state representatives and so forth, and I can't really get a definite answer why they're more supportive of Native people. Hmm. Since the land once was used for them, or their land, and it was taken from them, why is it such an issue getting support from our local government agencies? Death have not been able to get any answers. Now, Eleanor, how can the spreading of awareness and the history help local
1: Native people?
5: This is where the Cultural Center, I think, is an excellent place for that education to happen. Um, six acres isn't nothing, and we're actually having a volunteer event this weekend to remove some of the invasive species that are in the forested part of the grounds so that we can plant more native species and have some educational material on how our first peoples um, used those native plant species and how they stewarded the land. And this this is why, um, you know, above and beyond that kind of education, um, I think Ray, our other founding members, Miss Sally Wells, Peggy Williamson, for 42 years, have provided these services in the absence of state, um, federal, and tribal support of Native peoples who find themselves in Tennessee, and having more support for this educational center from the state, from the city, from our community, will make this educational space happen.
1: Jody Casadasat Matina is of the American Indian Movement is still with us. Jody, you know what kinds of work is AIM involved in here in Tennessee?
3: Oh, so many. Um, We're always working um, on changing mascots or working on that. And one of our other board members, Sayota Knight, he he's really spearheading that um, of getting out the importance of changing mascots. We always work with our MMIW, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's I'll just go over statistics really quick on that. Um, Native American women are 2.5 times percent more likely to experience violent crimes out of any other right race, two times more, um, more likely to experience rape or sexual assault. And four out of five of all Native American women have experienced violence. Um, the crime, National Crime Information Center for Missing Persons in 2020 released that there's over, well, there's almost 5,300 missing indigenous people, um, and they've never been found. Um, it, they're all open cases still. Um, we work on NAGPRA a lot, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, um, which is huge. And it's, it basically is about treating all remains with respect um, and that they should be returned because there's hundreds of thousands of human remains still in universities all across the world as well as museums. Um And that's pretty much what we have going on right now for AIM.
1: How do you at AIM and the NAIA work together to combine your efforts?
3: Um, They might be able to answer that question a little bit better. Unfortunately, Amy, um, who knows all of this information, she isn't feeling well. Get better. Well, get well soon, Amy.
2: Yes, get well. right? (laughs) One of our biggest problems is uh, staff members. We are very small and get spread out so much and it's so much to cover if you mm. don't deal with everything. So that be very important for AIM, and we try to work hand in hand. But for a hands-on, we do not because we just don't we just don't have the manpower. Mm. And NAI, just a service agency alone, you can imagine. Just like right now, we're working with clients. Some of them getting ready to be kicked out of the apartment, like a rent. The husband is stage four counsel. Food is definitely in need. We try to work and try to get them the food, supplies, whatever. We help them with their rent and so forth. There's so much going on in such a small group. It's very hard to cover everything.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Kalona. We're talking this hour about the current state of local Native American communities. Now, Eleanor, Ray was just talking about staffing being a problem, but you're not of Native descent, yet you're making the time. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to work with the Native American Indian Association?
5: Yes. So earlier um, there was discussion on the history of colonization and the brutal, violent history of that. And my ancestors were part of that history. And there's nothing we can do to change what's happened. But by being involved, you know, making sure that Native people in the place— wherever I live, have what they need to survive is really important to me. And I think that NAIA is the organization in Tennessee doing that for Native people. So when I found out about them and had the opportunity to join and ask how I can use my skills to help, um, that -hmm. was a great opportunity, and I'm really grateful to be a part.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, how did you feel when you learned about your ancestors' past?
5: it's a, it's a dark history. Um, you know, my ancestors enslaved other people of native and African descent, and it's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but I think that there's a lot that, um, knowing that there was a lot stolen from our first peoples in this state, I'm interested in how we can honor that knowledge and value that knowledge and respect our native people who've returned to Tennessee because that violent removal from the land has effects on things at the ecosystem level. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really interested in how being in right relationship with each other affects how we steward the land.
1: How can we do that? How can non-native people who may feel ashamed or (laughs) upset or embarrassed about the history, Mm
5: -hmm.
1: how can they give back?
5: I think NAI personally is a great way. We have lots of opportunities to support the organization where you can become a member for as little as $10 a year. Um, you can follow us on social media. Uh, you can, um, you can donate your time. You can donate your resources, your skills to support at the powwow, at our other volunteer events, like the one we're going to have this weekend, which you can find on our social media, mm-hmm. which is Um, N-A-I-A-T-N on most platforms and, um, going to local powwows is a great way to educate yourself. Um, there's quite a few in the state and the area, so we'd love to see y'all at the powwow.
1: You know, I'm, I'm I'm wondering, you know, Ray, how does the fetishization of native people and culture, how does that show itself here in Nashville?
2: That's a very hard one, to be honest with you. I feel strongly. We first of all, let me back up a little. We try to we we stay away from politics. Mm-hmm. By being a non-profit, but that's said and done with. So we have to kind of step away when it comes to politics and getting involved. Cause we have a, a a main reason, a focus, providing service for the native people here in the state. And they're what those service may be, whether it be housing, rent, food, medical, whatever. And then we go back and we work with their tribe and what tribe they're from and work with them, assist them getting back to their tribe. If that's what they're trying to do. But if they want to stay here in Nashville, we work with them on those levels also. I understand that. But, you know,
1: thinking about like when we were talking earlier about the myths that are happening about Native culture and there's appropriation out there, you know, so what should people see or do? If they see someone dispelling myths or participating in the appropriation of Native
2: culture? I think they should call it to their attention. It's unacceptable. It is, uh, it is something that Native people is not. It's just unacceptable, to be honest with you. And it's something that shouldn't be, be continued going this day and time. Jody, how can people better
1: educate themselves about the Native American communities here in Middle Tennessee? A listening
3: is everything. Um, I think so often people in general get defensive and stop listening right away, especially if they're caught doing something as perceived as wrong or not perfect, instead of allowing themselves to make mistakes and learn from that. So it's also in the delivery of like, hey, that's that's appropriation and it's a little disrespectful. Um, can I help educate you on that? And then that person not getting defensive and being like, because I'm sure people don't wake up and be like, I'm going to be offensive to this race of people. Um, So being willing to be educated at the same time. So it it goes back to community, that reciprocity, you know, Um, and that we're still very much here. And I see a lot of headdress use personally in Tennessee. Um, And again, that's disrespectful. Not all, because not all tribes even used a war bonnet. Um, it is actually very few that use the war bonnet. It also contributes to the sexual, sexualization of our people. Um, and you don't know what you had to do to earn that war bonnet. So mm. like, I don't, wouldn't, I would never dream about wearing a war bonnet. Number one, cause it's not my people. Number two, I haven't done anything to deserve it. So just cause I'm native, that doesn't mean I can appropriate someone else's It's stolen valor. Mm. Um, So, yeah, feel free to call people on it, even though it's uncomfortable, but do it in a respectful way and then listen. Acknowledgement is also everything. So uh, touching just briefly on um, what people who are not Native can do and acknowledgement is everything. We don't want you to feel guilty. We don't want you to give anything back. Um, But acknowledging the truth is everything.
1: Acknowledging the truth is a way for us to move Forward. I want to thank you so Absolutely. much for being on the show. That was Jody Gazadasat Matina from the American Indian Movement. She was joined by Eleanor Nope Lopez with the Native American Indian Association and Ray Emanuel of the NAIa. Thanks to you all for being with us today and for this really important conversation. Really appreciate
3: it. Shee-miigwech.
1: Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. The team is out tomorrow, but tune in for a special from The Splendid Table. And Friday, we'll bring you a rebroadcast of our episode about Music City's independent music venues. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and T- Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutho. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover. And the masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tom Kunish. Corey Allen and Amy Clark. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and Facebook. Instagram, no Facebook, sorry. And tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you on Friday, everybody. And be good to each other.